Blog Talk Radio.
Welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, February the 26th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of our program. Later on, we'll be coming up with our Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the Russian intervention in Ukraine and the international implications of the conflict. Also, the economic community of West African states has deployed another delegation to Mali to discuss the transitional process after two recent military coups. More people have been killed by a cyclone, uh, which hit the southern African state of Madagascar. We'll have details on that as well. And Algeria is commemorating its 60th anniversary of national independence from France, uh, which took place in 1962. In the second and third hours, we continue our celebration of African American History Month with examinations of two icons within the Black Liberation Movement of the 1950s to the 1980s, being Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, these and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take a musical interlude with Gambian core uh, player and composer, Sona Jubarte. Uh, this is a concert that she played in Russia uh, just two years ago. Let's listen in.
thank you. No rest. Sorry. But the song is about love. I would like to know uh, how you're going to say love in Russian. I hope it's not difficult. Okay, wait. Okay. At the front row, you there. Lu Wan. Lu Wan. Lu Wan. Lu Wan. I want to sing it with you, okay? And we're gonna, it's very easy, okay? Woyo, woyo, jarabi. Woyo, woyo, jarabi. Go like this.
Welcome back. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast for Saturday, February the 26th, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to another edition of the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. That was the music of Sona Jubarte uh, from the West African state of Gambia playing a live concert in Russia uh, approximately two years ago. And uh, right now we want to uh, move uh, to our Pan-African Newswire segment, and these are some of the headlines in uh, today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. Our lead story, of course, uh, deals with the current situation in Eastern Europe, uh, the Russian uh, military intervention in Ukraine, uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov uh, has briefed his Turkish counterpart, Mevlut uh, Kavusloglu, on Russia's special military operation in Donbass. The Russian foreign ministry said the following a phone call between the two top diplomats on Saturday. Uh, while discussing the current situation around Ukraine and the region on the whole, uh, Sergei Lavrov provided his Turkish counterpart with detailed information on the special military operation that the Russian armed forces are conducting in Donbass together with the militias of the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics based on a decision made by the Russian leadership. This, uh, 
That's what the statement said. It also went on to say that Russia highlighted its readiness to cooperate with all the constructive forces in order to find an early and sustainable solution to the Ukrainian issue in the interest of peace and stability, the Russian foreign ministry stressed, adding that the parties had also discussed uh, bilateral uh, relations and agreed to maintain contact. On February the 24th, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a special military operation based on a request from the heads of the Donbass republics. Uh, the Russian leader stressed that Moscow had no plans to occupy Ukrainian territories and the goal was to demilitarize and denazify the country. Uh, Russia's defense ministry reported later that the Russian armed forces were not delivering strikes against Ukrainian cities. The ministry emphasized that the Ukrainian military infrastructure was being destroyed by precision weapons and there was no threat uh, to uh, civilians. And in other news uh, related to the uh, Russian intervention in Ukraine, uh, Russia is capable of taking measures to mitigate the damage from sanctions, and that's according to the Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov. Uh, he told this to reporters uh, earlier today. Immediate measures are certainly uh, being taken in order to mitigate the damage from sanctions and ensure the unhindered operation of all economic sectors and systems, he noted. Peskov stressed that Russia has every possibility and potential to do that. It was created in advance uh, for such situations, uh, the Kremlin spokesman added. Analysts will be required to determine the retaliatory measures that would best serve our interests, uh, the Kremlin spokesman uh, said. In other news uh, from TASS, it says that on Friday afternoon, Russian President Vladimir Putin gave orders to stop troop advancement in Ukraine due to expected talks with Kiev. Yeah, because the opposite side refused to negotiate this afternoon, troop advancement uh, was resumed. Uh, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov uh, told journalists earlier today. Uh, Peskov said that yesterday afternoon over the expected talks with the Ukrainian leadership, the Supreme Commander-in-Chief of Russia's president uh, gave an order to suspend the advancement of the main forces of Russian troops, the Kremlin officials said. He explained that since, essentially, the Ukrainian side refused the talks, this afternoon the advancement of the main Russian forces resumed in accordance with the plan of operation. Putin's uh, press secretary specified that during the suspension of the advancement of the main forces, combat continued in some locations. There were clashes with mobile groups of nationalists and Bandera followers uh, who, who used light vehicles and trucks where they mounted strike weapons using the principle of jihad mobiles. Only there they are now called Bandera mobiles, the spokesman said. Russian President Vladimir Putin said in a televised address on Thursday morning that in response to a request by the heads of the Donbass republics, he had made a decision to carry out a special military operation in order to protect people uh, who have been suffering from abuse and genocide by the Kiev regime for eight years. The Russian leader stressed that Moscow had no plans of occupying Ukrainian territories. Russia's defense ministry reported later on Thursday that Russian troops were not delivering strikes against Ukrainian cities. It emphasized that Ukrainian military infrastructure was being destroyed uh, by precision weapons. And uh, if you want to read more about uh, the current situation uh, involving the conflict in Eastern Europe, 
the Russian military intervention in Ukraine, the response of NATO, the United States, and the uh, Great Britain. I just log on to the Pan-African Newswire, and we have detailed reports on a daily basis on all of these issues and questions. In other news, in West Africa, an envoy uh, from the regional bloc arrived in Mali on Thursday, and that's according uh, to uh, the international press, for talks with the military junta over restoring civilians in the volatile country. Now, former president of Nigeria, good luck, Jonathan, representing the 15-nation economic community of West African states, uh, was due to meet with officials in the capital of Bamako, including the leader, Colonel Asimi Guaita. Mali, a conflict-ridden Sahel nation with a population of 21 million, is governed uh, by a junta that seized power in August of 2020. And it's so far resisted international pressure to swiftly restore civilian rule. On Tuesday, uh, Jonathan urged Mali to transition uh, towards democracy as soon as possible, describing the country's government as an aberration. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And other news uh, in Southern Africa, at least four people have died and tens of thousands have been affected by Cyclone Emnati. It lasts the island nation of Madagascar. Officials uh, confirmed this yesterday. Still reeling from another cyclone earlier this month, Emnati hit Madagascar at the start of the week, uh, packing winds of up to 140 kilometers per hour, 90 miles per hour. Uh, there have been four deaths in Farafangana, a coastal town in the southeast, according to an initial toll by the Madagascar National Risk Management Office. Nearly 72,000 people have been impacted by the cyclone, which also left roads and bridges cut off. One of the poorest countries uh, in the African Union and Southern African Development Community Bloc, Madagascar is prone to numerous storms and cyclones between November and April of every year. Another storm, Cyclone Batsurai, struck the island on February the 5th, affecting some 270,000 people and claiming 121 lives. Tropical Storm Ana also struck in late January, killing about 100 people in Madagascar, Mozambique, Malawi, and Zimbabwe. Madagascar's southern region has also been ravaged by drought, leading to the malnutrition and pockets of famine. And finally, in the North African state of Algeria, on the occasion of the 60th anniversary of the end of the Algerian War, sociologist Samia Shabani, uh, the president of the Association of Progressive Pierre Nuez, Jacques Pradel, and the commentary documentary filmmaker of Algerian origin, Fatima Sissani recounts the link between Marseille and Algerian history. According to Samir Shabani, sociologist and president of the Kranjais uh, Association in Marseille, out of the 800,000 ha- inhabitants of Marseille, nearly 200 to 300,000 are concerned in one or another with Algeria and the history of the Algerian War, whether they are descendants of Algerian immigrants or Algerian-born French, Harkis, repatriates, so this constitutes in the city and in the urban narrative a considerable part of the history of our state. A public school can bear the name of a hero, but not that of an executioner, many believe, where uh, during his time instituted the scorched ground policies 
aimed at making the local population give up any form of resistance completely. We are currently in front of the Bugad School, well, the ex-Bugad School, in the third district of Marseille. The name of this school, of the eponymous street, has given rise to numerous protests to rename the school since it refers to Marshal Bugad, who participated in the conquest of Algeria, but who was known for his absolutely infamous practices of further stress, Samir Shabani. In the 60 years since Algeria won independence from France, it has gone through multiple crises with its former colonizers often fueled by domestic politics. Yet the two sides had surprisingly good relations for the first four decades, and it was only in the 1990s that things started to fall apart, experts say. Generally, despite the appearances of criticism, there's been a stable and very balanced relationship, said Luis Martinez, a Maghreb researcher at the Science Po University in Paris. That is, despite the devastation caused by the eight-year war of independence that finally led to the signing of the Evian Accords on March 18th of 1962, ending uh, the conflict. French historians say a million civilians and combatants died, 400,000 of them Algerians, while the Algerian authorities insist 1.5 million people were killed uh, during the War of National Liberation. Under French General Charles de Gaulle, whose administration signed the Accords and his successor, George Pompidou, uh, Paris had good relations with Algiers. The same was true of the administration of Francois Mitterrand, even though he had been interior minister when Algeria's armed independence struggle began in 1954 and remained opposed to the country's independence. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal, Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. We want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998 and has published thousands of articles and dispatches in newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites uh, throughout the world. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Journal, and the Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do is go to the panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Journal uh, so you can have access to this program as well as many, many other uh, archived editions, uh, over 1,100 uh, archived editions of the Pan-African Journal, all you need to do is go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network. And that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. All the 
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the voice of the legendary uh, Phyllis Hyman uh, with the track entitled I Found Love. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Uh, Today is Saturday, February uh, the 26th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit in a very, very cold and snowy and wet world day uh, in the city of Detroit. And right now we want to uh, begin a month-long commemoration of African American History Month. We're going to re-examine uh, some of the stalwarts of the civil rights movement, human rights movement, and black liberation movement. Two, namely uh, today, uh, Ella Baker, uh, who uh, in fact uh, had a long history of struggle uh, dating back to the 1930s and 1940s and the 1950s. Uh, She became the first executive director of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. She later was instrumental in the formation of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, as well as the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. Uh, Let's listen to an oral history of uh, Miss Ella Baker. 
Your, uh, I want to acknowledge, first of all, that uh, most of the literature I've read, uh, they've spoken rather highly of you. Some have gone so far as to dedicate works to you. Howard Zinn and his black abolitionist, uh, Leon Hope, his work on Mississippi Freedom Summer. These men felt that you were one of the main causes of this wheel that, that, uh, uh, that these subsequent movements uh, fought on. So I'm honored to talk to you this morning, and uh, I'd like for you to share with me uh, your, some of your experiences and uh, accounts of, of, of the role you played in SCLC and uh, your interpretations of roles other individuals played in the organization that you might be uh, necessary to give me more insight as to the dynamics involved in the programs that SCLC ultimately uh, uh, initiated. So uh, my first question to you, as I was saying earlier, is can you uh, mention to me or point out to me other factors aside from uh, the Montgomery movement and say the 1954 Supreme Court decision, which may have contributed to uh, the founding of SCLC when it was founded in 57? Well, I think the, what you have is a question of continuity of struggle. Uh, you said that the people had referred to me largely in terms of uh, maybe being a factor. And that, I think, sprang from the fact that in, uh, say, several years uh, before that, a number of years before that, in the 40s, in the late 30s and in the 40s, but the 40s in particular, I was working with the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and a primary function of mine was to um, go into areas, maybe some of the areas that had not been visited in a long while. Um, for instance, I used to leave New York uh, sometime in February and go into Florida. I'd start at the uh, uh, St. Pete's Tampa. And that was because we did not have, the association didn't have an active branch in Miami at the time. And so you'd work around St. Pete's and up the east or the west coast, uh, uh, Palm Beach, West Palm Beach, and on and on and up, Pompano, small places, and get Jacksonville, from Jacksonville to Tallahassee, Tallahassee to Pensacola, Pensacola into Georgia, into Mobile, Mobile uh, through Alabama, Alabama into Georgia, Georgia up till you came into Virginia. So that had been my... Uh, itinerary for several years, and in the process, it was uh, not to be unthought of that I uh, had touched a number of people who had not been visited for a long time by association personnel. So that may account for the, uh, whatever historical impact I may have had. In addition to that, uh, and in 54, the 54 decision uh, was frequently interpreted by people as being the end of the struggle because the, associate, uh, the NAACP struggle had been one of legal action to a large extent. And uh, the 1954 decision culminated 
an effort on the part of the lawyers of the association to raise the question of the constitutionality of racial segregation. And this was the case on which that got verbalization. And so that becomes a historical monument. And to some people, it almost was interpreted as being the end of the struggle. But as we have seen from the history of the, the, the question of racial segregation and discrimination, we have had court uh, action that has been nullified uh, from time immemorial. Go back, you must go back to the Reconstruction period, and I'm not going into that, but you go back there. Much of what was supposedly gained uh, in the 40s and 50s legally had been supposedly secured to us in uh, the prize uh, is to right after the Reconstruction period, and you know those laws were nullified. So, uh, SCLC. Why? It was... You were about to speak to the why of SCLC. Well, uh, I think the basic why of SCLC has to do with what had taken place in the 54 decision and the unthought of Montgomery plus boycott. But before you can evaluate the bus boycott, you have to understand how it came about. And it didn't come out of a vacuum. There were two people in Montgomery who had functioned uh, with the NAACP over the years. And they were Mrs. Rosa Parks and Ed E.D. Nixon, not Ed, his, uh, I don't know what his name was, but E.D. Nixon. Where did E.D. Nixon get his fire? He got his fire and his sense of social action from being a member of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and the struggle that it had waged over the uh, years. And so when the Montgomery bus boycott ended successfully. Here you had a social phenomenon that had not taken place uh, in the history of those of us who were around at that time, where hundreds of people and even thousands of people, just ordinary people, had taken a position that put them in a very uncomfortable uh, uh, at least made, made life less comfortable for them when they decided to walk rather than to ride the bus. And this was a mass action, and a mass action that anybody who looked at the social scene would have to appreciate and wonder, those of us who, who believe that mass only through mass action are we going to eliminate certain things, uh, which have to think in terms of how, do you, how does this get carried on? And so uh, whatever the reasons or however the historical uh, 
giving them the information and uh, broadening the scope of their understanding of what was involved. Uh, one of the reasons uh, was that I had seen that many, to a large extent, most of the branches were feeling that their duty was to provide some memberships and some money to the national audit. They had attitudes that were not particularly uh, helpful in terms of change. For instance, uh, say uh, Atlanta or somewhere else, I'm not identifying Atlanta per se as such, but they would be against the idea of going to the going to battle for the town group who happened to have been maybe brutalized and being arrested because he who was he and in uh, some places like uh, Buffalo New York for instance uh, they there they, most of the black children were coming out with uh, high school with just certificates attesting to the fact that they had been in attendance uh, but uh, so I frequently would have people ask me as I came up from the deep south up, say, to Virginia and North Carolina, how are things down south? Which meant that to them, that's where the problem was. And they had not identified the problem in their own area. So, uh, this is what, the 50s, the early 50s? The uh, 50s, yeah. Late 40s, see, the 40s up to 46, 47, when I was trapped. I'm sure that you were working, uh, you did some associate work in the, in the floor when you came up to Mobile and uh, Tampa and all of you guys. Where was that? That was in the 40s. In the 40s. You threw that on the With old the NFLACP. I was serving as an assistant field secretary there. How was it that you moved into a position at uh, STLC. What was the process involved? The process there was to say after the 54 decision, after the uh, Montgomery boycott, or simultaneous or most with it, the 54 decision precipitated certain kinds of repressive action against people who attempted to enroll their children in Two places in particular come to mind. One was Clarendon County, South Carolina, and I think uh, that was Yazoo, Mississippi, uh, where the black attempted to uh, enroll, and certain repressive actions were taken against people who were tenant farmers for 30 and 40 years no longer had anywhere to farm. And uh, those who had no, had no business, they were boycotted, uh, uh, were boycotted against them in terms of the delivery of uh, goods and services. So uh, some of us here in New York, including uh, oh, two or three ministers, one in particular, one black minister is now dead, that was Jim Robinson, the Reverend James H. Robinson, who was the in the Presbyterian Church, the Church of the Master, and he had been associated with the NAACP as a youth secretary. And uh, uh, like uh, Rabbi Wise, I believe it was, oh, anyway, I, I, I have the list here, but these, we organized, we, they were people who were at prestige 
but some of the rest of us, like Byers, George Lawrence, uh, Stanley Levison of the American Jewish Committee, and so forth, American Jewish Congress, I'm sorry, the committee and the Congress are different, uh, organized what was, and some of the labor people organized what was called in friendship. And its purpose was largely to provide some uh, material and legal assistance as much as possible to such people as were being evicted from their uh, tenant uh, form of households uh, uh, and uh, other situations in Clarendon County and Yazoo and other places. So out of that came um, the, the concept of uh, an enlarged effort. You see, now by that time you were running into uh, so 54 was the decision. The people were having their difficulties, say 55 and 56, and then came uh, in that period, you see, the Montgomery boycott took place. And the boycott then uh, moved on the scene as having involved a large number of people. And uh, so the question arises, where do you go from here? Also, the question arose in respect to uh, mass action. Uh, does the NAACP lend itself to mass action? Or will it initiate mass action? Or will it continue its program of legalism? And so some... This is, for me, this is uh, at the best from Ian from the Birmingham Barcard. Of Montgomery. Yes, it yeah. would come at that period. Uh, so the question in uh, some of our minds is that uh, there was something there that should continue, that you needed a force in the South that was comparable to the NAACP in some respects. Why? Because the NAACP, in the minds of those of us who were concerned at that stage, primarily dealt with legal action. And although it had a uh, program of branch action, it had not organized mass action that lent itself to demonstrations, etc. So, then, so if you go to all, so if you think in terms of something in the South for mass action, and it, you start with the group that had been involved in something. So there was Montgomery, and out of, and in connection with Montgomery, there were large numbers of black ministers or a number of black ministers throughout the area who had identified with that struggle. For instance, the C.K. Steele in Tallahassee, Florida, and uh, Abraham of something, something, something or other in uh, New Orleans. Yeah, Jameson. Uh, and, uh, Jameson had had a boycott of his own in, uh, in um, uh, Baton Rouge, you see. So what you do then uh, is uh, stimulate thought of an organization in the South uh, that can uh, spread the At this point, you may be able to help me clear up another question, too. There's a question as to where uh, the, the initial call uh, for this conference uh, stemmed from. Uh, 
reading a book like Lewis uh, Miller, uh, they suggest that uh, the call came from C.K. Steele. Well, I went down and interviewed Reverend Steele, and he assured me that the call didn't come from him. He responded to the call. He's some Jewish talking, or some funny talking man called him. He's always thought it was Bear Breston, and asked him if he would go along with the conference in late 56, late December 56. And he said, yeah, it was just this kind of a thing. He had just finished this Tallahassee thing, and they were with that Civic Council. So I'll try to pin down, if it's any way possible. I don't know whether you can pin it down other, because now I, I think bias may not uh, verify the fact that uh, there were three of us who talked into the wee hours of the morning in terms of how do you develop a force that can uh, enlarge upon the gains or the impact of the Montgomery Force boycott. Excuse me now. Did the three represent you, Byer, Byer Levinson? Yes, Stanley Levinson. Largely at Stanley's house. He was a man with some money, and uh, Byers and I would go over there not living where he used to. Why me? Because I knew the South, uh, comparatively, in terms of their knowledge of it. They had not had as wide knowledge as I had, plus the fact I had uh, been associated with the NAACP. And so uh, uh, we talked into the wee hours, and the concept of trying to develop out of out of the Montgomery West Boycott leadership a form. And uh, when they uh, approached, no doubt, uh, Martin and whoever else, it was largely their response that would be in terms of ministry. Uh, that's why you get the ministerial thing. You couldn't uh, think in terms of a leadership out uh, around a bus boycott without also thinking of C.K. Steele's efforts and Jameson's efforts. McCullough, uh, South Carolina. Well, McCullough he had, came, a he, he came a little bit after that. But you see, then when you go into the whole question of, uh, as which was the pattern in the South, who are the leaders, the ministers, which may or may not be justifiable, but that's how it started. And so then, uh, uh, let's say uh, the call came from Martin. Yeah, well, that's where the basic report. Yeah, but uh, they thought, uh, historically, he gets credit for it. But the truth, let it be known that no one individual really conceived yeah. of an idea like that without uh, somewhere, somehow some other things, some other input. Right. Now, uh, <clears throat> I can see a great deal of participating uh, happenings uh, leading to the founding of SCLC. The next question in my mind is, after this was realized that there was a need for uh, somewhat of an instrument to try and spread this movement that was in Montgomery with the hope of bringing about greater social change, what was the notion of the kind of an organization you would have? Uh, I know you said you would have a great deal of ministers, but would it be one with just a president and a lot of lieutenants, a president and an executive secretary with a great deal of power, 
uh, was it a democratic organization in conception, a strong dictatorial organization? What was the thinking about the nature of the organization at this time? Well, the thinking about the nature of the organization would vary with the people who were doing the thinking. Okay. Uh, those of us who preferred uh, an organization that was democratic and where the decision-making was left with the people uh, would think in one vein and the organizing of active, let's call it, chapters or units of people. But when you reckon with the fact that the majority of the people who were called together were ministers, and the decision as to who was called together uh, emanated, no doubt, from both uh, the background out of which, let's call it, Martin and those uh, came, and uh, maybe lack of understanding, I'm willing to grant, of the virtue of uh, utilizing the mass surge that had developed say, in Montgomery. Just look at Montgomery. What has happened since in Montgomery? What? That's right. Nothing. But there's another problem here. So uh, I think that came, uh, the nature of the organization became to a large extent a ministerial thing. Out of the 100 plus, I forgot how many, that were present at that initial meeting where the formal organizing organization took place, I think Whitney Young and a uh, guy from Mississippi uh, uh, whom uh, I had worked with for a number of years, um, uh, I can't think of his name. Uh, no, no, no. Anne Moore in Cleveland, Mississippi, uh, were among the maybe two or three non-ministers present. And I was the only woman, I think maybe another person came and sat in with them. Do you think the reason for that was also the ministers uh, at that time? They had, Basically, I mean, yes. They, they had the, uh, the power to... Well, not only, you see, not only the power... Put together. No, not only the power, but uh, uh, there, when you haven't been accustomed to mass action, and they were, you see, you're, basically your ministers are not people who go in for decisions on the part of people. I don't know whether you realize it or not. But they and you see they had been looked upon as saviors. And uh, so what happens is here they are faced with uh, a suggestion that goes against the grain and for which they are not with, uh, with which they are not prepared to deal. So they come together. There's one other question I think uh, your best uh, person for uh, 
focusing on that problem, if there were one, would be such as Nixon. Uh, to, because he was the treasurer and he resigned, and he resigned for certain reasons. Uh, but it wasn't so much the problem of, uh, let's call it, the dual uh, function of king. Uh, because, unfortunately, in retrospect, what you are seeing, you're looking in retrospect. And, but at the initial stages, you have to reckon with the fact that most of the people involved had never had any experience in developing mass action. And they function largely in the church vein. That if you had a meeting and you preached to the people, and the people would go out and do what you say do and come back. So it wasn't a question of opening it up. It was largely ministry. Well, uh, uh, Grandma Tilly was the first executive director of the uh, That's right. Now, uh, one of the persons contending for an executive director according to the source that I looked at was Reverend Martin Luther King C. You know, it was a constant thing of his. In each one of the uh, few minutes I saw, and I have to do this all up. Uh, he would tell them, don't forget we've got to get an executive director. You know, you're always trying to look for little nuances or things that give you some kind of a hint. And I got the impression now that he was hoping they would hurt to get somebody where he could take some of the pressure that he off of his son. Uh, what's your thinking in that regard? Do you think that... Uh, well, it could well be, because I don't think at the stage uh, even of the Montgomery Bus boycott, uh, Martin Luther King Sr. was ready for the role that uh, Martin was uh, catapulted into, and I use the term advisedly, uh, because uh, I don't think uh, Martin Luther King Sr. nor Jr. had uh, uh, thought in terms of their his, uh, juniors, in, juniors being in Montgomery in terms of developing a mass action program. You see, um, they were still ministers. And so he probably was uh, uh, thinking of an executive uh, director uh, to take some of the uh, pressure that he conceived of it off of Martin, plus the fact uh, see the uh, CLC as such formally organized uh, over a year before it had any office or any executive at all. How do you explain that? Right. And how do you explain that uh, in the middle of 1959, they reduced the executive staff to one, namely you? Well, it, I was the one. See, I opened the office. I set up the office of SCLC. And uh, that's the story I'll tell some other time. But I will not go into detail. Uh, because I went there uh, primarily to do to their first program, which was to have 20-odd meetings in different cities simultaneously on the same night, which is February 12th. But I went there uh, primarily to do to their first program, which was to have 20-odd meetings 
in different cities simultaneously on the same night, which is February 12th. <laughs> uh, yes, and so both, well, yeah. And uh, so I had anticipated being there about six weeks, give myself four weeks to get the thing going, and two weeks to clean it up. But they had no body. And how did they get Reverend Tilly? Uh, see, they wanted a ministry, I knew that. They couldn't have tolerated a woman, and they couldn't have tolerated a woman. Well, let me, let me repeat something. Uh, I had a team to look at the uh, uh, criteria for selection that was suggested by Dr. King and a couple of people to when? the election committee. When was the, the criteria, when was the criteria suggested? Though? Well, in 58. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah. It was 58, prior to the time, and, and, and Dr. King emphasized that they shouldn't just confine that consideration to ministers, you know, and I thought it was kind of strange that he made that point, but I think that uh, it was made advisedly in that uh, he wanted to encourage bringing in uh, people with a few more administrative skills that, that he believed ministers had, you know, and, but anyway, they wound up getting Dr. Tilly. But as soon as Dr. Tilly resigned, you stepped in and became uh, executive director. And from the sources I've seen, I also see where you conceived this idea of the citizenship crusade. And uh, you spare a lot of detail, some of the things you felt should be done. Did you encounter any difficulty in trying to get this problem over, or was SCLC glad to get it, this proposal? Well, first place, Dr. Tiller, Reverend Tiller became the executive, largely because I knew Tiller. They had, um, I knew they wanted a minister. The it was uh, scheduled to go down even at the time I went instead of me. I hadn't thought of it. I never had anticipated uh, to set up the office. And after setting up the office, and after the program of uh, February the 12th had taken place, there became pressure from the people, the ministers who were involved, for a organi an organization. The person whom you might uh, talk to if you ever get around to it is uh, a minister in, uh, in Nashville, Smith, named Smith. Kelly Smith. Kelly, Kelly, Kelly Miller Smith, yes. Very perceptive young man at the time. And um, uh, so when they, they wanted, they hadn't found anybody, or at least they hadn't decided on, they, I, they thought in terms of Dr. the young man who's now dead, I think who became president of Birmingham College, uh, Pitts. 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 Uh, was a teacher in Georgia, and I had known him in my NACP days. So I went to him and talked with him. And he asked me to talk with him. They had made some slight overtures to him, and then he decided he couldn't do that. So um, I suggested they had waited on around. Nothing was happening, you see. Uh, some days they, they see. What was happening was nothing except what. I was doing in the office and um, so I suggested since they had to have a minister, there was, and I heard that Tilly had been responsible for a 
voter registration drive in Baltimore, uh, which may or may not be quite accurate because that was uh, no doubt masterminded by the president of the Baltimore branch NHCP, Mrs. Jackson and her daughter, Juanita, who was the wife of Clarence Mitchell, who was the NACP uh, Washington bureau person. So anyhow, uh, they never got around to calling anybody. So Stanley and I met Tilly here in New York. Tilly said he would be interested. And then he went down to see them. He became the executive director. And uh, but he maintained his church connections in Baltimore, which meant he was in and out. So whatever was being done in terms of continuity had to be done by whoever was there. These first three years of FDLC operation, you were not an intimate participant, right there where you could see most of what was going on. So my question to you is. And uh, the young people 
And then, of course, uh, I knew that young people were the hope of any movement. And so it, it was just a normal thing to me. Uh, and ministers, you see, the average Baptist minister didn't really know organization. Now, this I know most people would be highly critical of, as they were. What happened was a minister would come into a church, and he would follow the pattern that had been there all along. You'd have a, a Sunday school, a ladies' home, or a ladies' auxiliary, and all this. All the yeah, change that he would do, all. all that he did was change the person who was in charge, you see. Yeah, it wasn't created. And uh, so, well, that... Is there anything that happened in the, what, letter of 59 or 60 or whatever, which triggered the SCLC to start moving really, you know, using that state in 1760 as an organized, and, uh, you know, really... Well, what triggered it, it was the formation, the thing that maybe triggered it more than anything else to get into a broad program of action or effort to action. That was the formation of the, uh, the existence of SNCC. The sit-ins, out of the sit-ins came SNCC. And SNCC was an action in this group, activist group. And... Uh, have you read The Making of a Black Revolutionary by James Foreman? Yeah, yeah. And I, everybody uh, give you credit for bringing about two almost profound compromises in terms of SNCC and SNCC's relationship to FCLC. The first one, and I'd like you to clear me up this on an arrow on that, uh, took place in that second organizational meeting that they uh, had in... Uh, well, the first one led to the actual calling of the, of the meeting. You believe, and you express that in, 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 in the papers I've seen, uh, that in order to uh, keep the spirits going among these young people, keep them from being discouraged and resort to violence, we better get them some kind of coordination and uh, direction going right here in organization. So you fought the SCLC into underwriting this Raleigh conference at your former school there. And that's where you first got together, where you brought all these students in from North and South and some leaders. And uh, the, the young people, from what I could gather, was a little skeptical about Dr. King at that time, but they were somewhat high on Reverend Dawson, you know. But uh, they went along with adding nonviolence to their uh, uh, platform because of the influence of people like you and Reverend Lawson, in addition to the charisma of uh, Dr. King. And the second one, where you brought about a compromise at Montego uh, at the Highlander Folk School. And this one, I think, was a little more significant and that it almost led to the breaking up of SNCC. Uh, you had a group there that wanted to be engaged in military action, you know, confrontation, full throttle ahead. You had another group uh, who had been enticed by the overtures to engage the full force and voters registration, you know. So you suggested that they go both ways. And the young people caught that, and uh, they came away. Well, what they really were fighting uh, over was a question of dominance. Uh, you see, there's those who came out of the non-violent uh, resistance struggle, like uh, Diane Nash and some who came out of Nashville, 
they were more deeply indoctrinated in the uh, real philosophy and practice of nonviolence than many others. Uh, those who were advocating voter registration uh, had been influenced to a large extent by their meetings with such personalities as uh, Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy had tried to almost buy them in terms of uh, saying concentrate on getting uh, life people registered. Of course, he had in mind the next election, which would have brought his brother back in, you see. And so, uh, at the Highlander meeting, uh, there were those who uh, contended very heavily uh, for their point of view, to the point that they looked like they were splitting. And uh, I have been accused uh, by a couple of the grown-ups there of uh, not letting them more or less split because those who were very dedicated to the concept of nonviolence did not see that voter registration would precipitate a conflict, uh, not a conflict, but a confrontation with violence. The nature of the kinds of areas into which they were going, because the young people decided after well, this was year, months and months, weeks and weeks, all nights and so forth of discussion, they recognized that going to southwest Georgia, going down into deep Alabama and Mississippi meant you were going to be faced with violence. And so, and they, uh, so then, uh, if there were, if uh, they compromised, it was largely in terms of the fact that the strength of the movement lay uh, in being together, not in division. That was the basis. Uh, I, mine was not a choice of nonviolence versus but it, mine was in terms of the history of the knowledge of history that I at least had, and the recognition that where their strength would ultimately lie would be in involving people in mass, but together, not one fighting for nonviolence. Can I say this? What? Uh, during that time, uh, what was uh, the NACP Corps reaction to uh, their sales team during that time? Well, outwardly, outwardly, it was friendly, let's put it that way. Uh, maybe subterraneously, there were uh, concerns about the extent to which SCLC might uh, uh, preempt their role in certain places, but, but no, you didn't have any outward conflict. The organization pulled an awful lot of people from the NACP. No, I don't think so. No, I don't think it was because you didn't accept individual membership. That was one of the basic. That was one of the basic rules of SCLC in order to try and placate organizations like NWA. That was a basic uh, projection from the beginning when those of us who talked in terms of organizing SCL uh, and SCLC or some force in the South was to avoid individual memberships. Uh, which would not place you in competition with the NAACP. Well, Ms. Baker, uh, 
Your idea for crusade for citizenship did create somewhat of a problem. Uh, I'm mindful of the fact that uh, you tried to get an advisory committee together for this thing, and you sent names out to all of the big people. Because somebody would lend that name to it. You want to ask them to really give money. But just to lend that name to it, you sent the rap parts, and uh, even sent Roy Wilkins was. And uh, Mr. Wilk is uh, uh, subsequently declined, but he recommended somebody from his group. And But uh, Mr. Hart said uh, explicitly that he didn't want to uh, be involved with this uh, uh, citizenship project because he was already on the board of the NAACP, and they were engaged in similar action, and he didn't want the NAACP to feel that he was encouraging another organization that was doing basically the same thing that they were doing. And beyond that, uh, there were reports in uh, New York Amsterdam News and one or two other papers uh, that Wilkins was a little keyed at this kind of thing. You know, they didn't state specifically what he said, but they got the implication that he was key. And, uh, uh, obviously, Dr. King felt the same way because I remember I remember that he wrote to uh, uh, the executive board that he was going to try once more to try and get cooperation between his organization and the NAACP. So can you shed a light on that situation for me, or did you detect any kind of antagonism or friction or tension between the two groups at that time? Well, I think uh, what you're faced with was a normal situation in the period, in the context of the period. Here was an organization that was in uh, 1950, the NACP was at least 41 years old. That's the thing that came into being in 1909. It had carried on certain kinds of programs. And here was an individual who had not had any real connection. They hadn't grown up in the, the struggle. Martin had not historically been a, been a part of any part of the struggle. He was the son of a well-to-do minister, and he was in search of a higher uh, status in terms of education. And uh, I don't think there's any record of his being involved in movements of any kind prior to that. Yeah. So what do you have? Uh, somebody could say there's an upstart. And uh, I guess these are the human factors. So I'm sure there were, there were strains. For instance, uh, uh, frequently well, Mar uh, Roy would have to be uh, sort of convinced, let's say, to put it politely, uh, to participate in such as the March on Washington and the, the prior to the March, that uh, famous March. Prior to that, there were uh, uh, the 1957 prayer pilgrimage, and then the, there were a couple of marches involving uh, uh, students in terms of school. Uh, the question of school segregation, uh, but the, that, the last action type thing like that, the NACP at that stage had not been involved with. And naturally, there would be this sense of uh, priority of rights, let's call it. And uh, who was the bridge between that? That was Phil Randolph. 
You, you look at the record. Never, never did they have a conference in terms of working out without Phil Landau. Phil had the respect of both. Phil had been, he had articulated uh, the concept of mass action and had attempted, uh, you know, the thing that got called off. March on Washington. March on Washington in the 40s. And uh, Mrs. Roosevelt and Mayor LaGuardia, uh, you know, our good angels of the liberal angels, talked him out of it, you see. But uh, NACP could not afford uh, Roy could not afford to absolutely turn thumbs down on the situation because they could have been left out in the cold, number one. And number two, their deep respect for Phil Randolph. He was really a monument in that whole scenario yes, that, if yes. you look at it, because he uh, initiated the idea to go and talk to the president, uh, the self-care and he wanted to have a call-up meeting, but he wanted a full. Yeah. But Roy and Granger turned thumbs down on that. Now, they didn't go along with him on that. Martin Luther was wholeheartedly in favor of it. Had other leaders aside from themselves coming in and talking to the president, you know. But uh, uh, the Urban League and NAACP didn't think that would be the wisest thing. Well, you time. see, they couldn't trust Cor. <laughs> in their minds, you see. Oh, right. you see, and they, see what you have there is the uh, uh, division between those who have some respect for mass action and pressure, and those who believe that your best uh, uh, result came from negotiations uh, from the knowledgeable people. You see. And the negotiations from the knowledgeable and legal action were the NAACP and the Urban League. There were four of the people who, uh, four of the names that, uh, that, that were frequented in this whole uh, episode. And I'd like to mention them to you and just uh, get you to give whatever response you can to them. Uh, I'll mention them and give you my impression of what they were doing. You had uh, Stanley Levinson. Uh, from the time of uh, his involvement in writing the book, Stride Toward Freedom, clean on up until I have been able to see documents beyond the year of 62. Uh, the man was, was King's constant uh, advisor. You know, he just reveled in the man. You know, he just regarded King as being something super special. And he didn't charge him a penny for all of the legal work he did, not in print. He told that he did not want him to pay him anything. He was doing this because he wanted to participate in the movement, and this was one way he could try and look out for him, you know. And every important decision I think he made, he either consulted with Levinson or he got some advice from Levinson. Where do you find this? Uh, in the papers in Boston, Boston University. King's Papers. King's Papers. I see. And he put all of them down there, King's Papers. That man wrote him on everything, on his book, on his taxes, on his dealing with Fred Gray down in Alabama when Gray wanted to rip him off for so much money to represent them, on Ming out of Chicago. The whole episode, this man was giving King advice, and King seemed to have regarded his advice highly. So what was your impression of Stanley Levinson, number one? Another individual was Bill Rustin. Rustin gave him a great deal of advice. 
And uh, there's something that, that's puzzling me in David Lewis's book. He mentioned that, that, that about the middle of 1955, no, no, not the King backed out in the last minute on his conference on education part because he feared that he might be, you know, called a communist or being sympathetic toward communists. But at the same time, he was getting ready to make a recommendation to the board that they hire a bed resident as his special assistant. And there was already rumors out that Rustin might be associated or might have socialist and communist leanings. You know, so this is somewhat, I, I, don't, I can't reconcile how on one hand he would just completely disassociate himself with self, uh, yes. scale. And on the other hand, he's going to wholeheartedly endorse uh, 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 Rustin when he pointed out in his recommendation that he was mindful of the fact that this might be misinterpreted, people might attribute uh, our going in different directions. But this he felt that Rustin was so valuable to him that he had to take that chance. And one other person I want you to speak to is uh, uh, Smiley, Glenn Smiley. Oh, now, uh, Mr. William Miller, who worked with FOR along with Smiley, wrote King around the middle of 1959. This is where all of this was coming ahead. But that and suggested to him that there was a, 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 some friction between Smiley and Rustin, and that both of them were trying to get his attention, you know. And King replied to him by saying that, yeah, he had been observing that for, for a number of months now, but he was at a loss to know exactly what to do about it. But there's no question about Smiley's commitment, you know, uh, to the nonviolent principles and the fact that he was willing to give his all to. SCLC and the calls of nonviolence. So these individuals, in addition to yourself, keep and coming up. And he was out. giving his call all not to SCLC. That was to the Montgomery Boys boycott. All right. Did, did, was he part of the SCLC? Not that I know of. Okay, very good. No. You see, so what is your major question? I My guess? major question is, how did you perceive being close to the whole uh, uh, movement, the role of these gentlemen? Was it similar to the one I portrayed? Uh, do you see it differently? No. Uh, so Stanley, number one, uh, comes out of the American Jewish Congress. He had some prior knowledge of the value of social action because the Congress was not uh, just uh, an organization of top heavy individuals alone. But you see, the Jewish people, there have been people who did a lot of demonstrating. Uh, so he, uh, and he was part, as I said, part to the initial discussions, uh, thinking of how do you keep alive what has come out of uh, what has been demonstrated in the Montgomery bus boycott. So, uh, you're raising the question of his dedication. He didn't have to charge because he had income, he had business, and uh, he was knowledgeable about fundraising. And uh, whatever his personal motivations for doing it, you would have to find out from him. But uh, his uh, 
uh, the fact that he was involved before in social action. Uh, see, I met Stanley when I was president of the local branch of the NAACP, and he and I, he called upon me for uh, trying to get uh, some action out of the NACP against the McCarran Walter Immigration Act. You see, uh, many times there are other groups, especially in the New York area, that are much farther advanced, further advanced in terms of dealing with social issues uh, than, that affect the whole population than the NACP, which was concentrating primarily on race. So Stanley and I met, so when the uh, boycott came about, uh, then uh, he knew that Rustin comes, came out of the Fellowship of Reconciliation way back, and at that time was with the War Resistance League, and he, was, he has a history of dedication to the concept of nonviolence. I have no such history. I have no such uh, uh, concept, I mean, no such commitment in my, uh, historically, nor even now, have I, can I claim that, because I, that's not my way of functioning. So, here you are. You needed somebody who was in, who had the entree to nonviolence, you needed to, and there was another thing, question, how do you pay for these things? So, that's explained. I hope. No, I don't know. It goes a long way to explain it. Because Levinson was a contact in the circles around New York and yeah. other places on the East Coast. Sure. Nobody could get money. Sure. And money was a vital ingredient for this whole thing. Yeah. And uh, he, he also... Welcome back. And that was um, part of a audio file of uh, oral history uh, with Ella Baker, a luminary uh, in the black uh, freedom struggle in the United States going back to the 1930s and 40s. Uh, she had one point uh, been the executive director of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. She was instrumental in the formation of uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, in 1960. Uh, also involved in the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party um, effort uh, during uh, the year of 1964, among other issues. And we're commemorating uh, African American History Month uh, for 2022. And uh, we'll take a break. Uh, we'll be back with more of our program.
In vogue and don't let go. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Saturday, February 26, 2022. We're going to continue our African-American History Month uh, re-examination, this time of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. This is the audio documentary uh, that uh, was released in 1963 entitled We'll Never Turn Back. And, of course, uh, SNCC being the organization that was formed in 1960. And as we heard uh, in the oral history interview that was done in 1974 uh, with Ella Baker, uh, that uh, she is instrumental in the formation of the organization. Let's listen in. call themselves Americans, about those in the South today who are trying to make democracy live. It begins with the painful and heartfelt assumption that we are not an island of perfection, but in fact a land of imperfection in an imperfect world. Negroes are trying to register, to vote, and help to change situation that they're existing under today help to bring about democracy in our land today. Mississippi, 1963. For a moment, in this hillside home, they are secluded from the white segregationists who carry guns and clubs. I'm, I've been living in a mid-county 52 or three years. I've participated in everything that the county saw fit for a citizen to participate in. And also, I raised my family here in the Mid-County, nine little children. I only have two kids now going to school here in the Mid-County. I also was a president of the NAACP here in the Mid-County. And I, would, I do think that every citizen in the Mid-County should participate in an election. And I hope and trust that I will have the privilege to vote once or twice in my life. I'm Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, and I farmed on the Marlow Plantation for 18 years. I had charge of keeping up with the time and paying off, and I went down the 31st of August to try to register. And after I had gotten back home, Mr. Marlowe told me that I would have to go down and withdraw my registration or leave because they wasn't ready for that in Mississippi. And I said, Mr. Marlowe, I'm trying to register for myself. So I had to leave that same night after I had gone down in August. And then I spent one night with Mrs. Tucker, and after the, about two days in September, they shot in the house, 15 times, thinking that I was there. Resistance to change in the South is great. And behind the headline, there's a story of intimidation that is seldom told. The police dogs, the police brutality, the use of fire holes and, and other forms of intimidation to turn 
Negroes back. It's what hits the headlines daily. But there's a story that is yet to be told. tries to make a living on a farm for herself and four teenage children. They sent me to the hospital. They put my lane in the soil bank. They got $1,095. They rented the other lane for $375. They put my children on welfare. When I came out of the hospital, they had taken my fence down and widened the road down through my place. They went around and got all of my creditors, different people that I owed to trust me, and they hadn't paid anybody. I got a lawyer to straighten my business out, and he told me that he would. Well, he didn't do anything about it. He worried me about selling some of the land. I told him that I didn't want to sell the land, that I wanted to furnish so that I could farm and make a living for my children. And so they just put pressure on me. They cut the welfare check. To twenty dollars a month, then they cut it to seventeen dollars a month. They worried me so that I had a nervous breakdown in sixty. I had to go back to the hospital. So when I came back, I came back home. I still tried to get a punish. He collected all the money, rent on the place. He didn't pay the federal land back. The notes that I owed, they put pressure on me, trying to get me to sell the land. I refused. So last year. I rented a portion of the lane for $200 cash. He got that $200. He didn't give us any of it. I went down to Illinois to Reddish and vote. I got down and made my revival back. My landlord said unto me, if you don't go down and take your name off the registration to move. I took his word and I moved to Drew, Mississippi. Couldn't sit too much pressure to be on the landlord there. Had me to move on to Cleveland, Mississippi. After arriving to Cleveland, Mississippi, my wife, she had to go to the hospital down to Jackson. It's there on the same generation. And I didn't know what step to take. I'm still working. Nine girls here. I'm working, trying to take care of them, to the best of my knowledge. This is Mrs. Mildred Ellings. She's 32 years of age. She's lived on Mr. W.D. Fields' plantation for 11 years. She's the mother of eight children. Her children do not attend school regularly because of food, clothing, and money. Last year, Mrs. Evans made 11 bales of cotton. At the end of the year, she only received $123. I am 17 years old. I pick 300 pounds of cotton a day. I am 9 years old. I help my mother pick cotton. I pick 100 by day. I am 14 years old. I help my mother pick cotton. I can pick about 200 a day. This is Mrs. P. Williams, the great-grandmother of the five children here. She receives a small Social Security check each month. 
and from this she must help support the children so their mothers earn and take care of them. The reason I do, because my mother worked a crop and I had to help her, and so I quit school so that I could help her. sitting on the chair and they were sitting. the girl was badly shot up and they had to be rushed to the hospital and and they suffered very much we went over to see them and they were very much in pain they had to be rushed to another hospital in Jackson and one had to go and this is the results after I had uh, registered my name is Todd I was working in Ruleville Mississippi on the night of the shootings 1762 I went to the hospital to check on the condition of the two girls who had been shot and was arrested shortly after my arrival there by the mayor of the town of Ruleville. I spent the night in jail talking to the mosquitoes with no charges preferred against me. The night the shot was made in my house, there was no one there but me and my wife. We have six months, last six months employment conversation. My name is Eddie Nunnery, native of a mid county and live in the state of Mississippi. I've gone to try to register at this register office and after going there several times they failed me and told me I was disqualified to register. And after going there once it was a gun fight. Lots of people in a mid-county are afraid to go to Liberty and register or vote because they are afraid of being killed. Lots of them are afraid to join the NAACP because they'd be afraid to lose their job and have to go hungry. Peacock, a field secretary for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. At present, I'm working in Greenwood, Mississippi, 
in Lower Fulton County on voter registration. Our present activities are the distribution of the food which has been sent from the north uh, as an emergency relief. Uh, we feel that this, uh, this particular food will, will serve the needs of the needy to the greatest advantage. I think that, the, that they are very appreciative of this and I think that they have care and are concerned about them.
young people there is hope. Many of them have dropped out of school for a year or more to work as field secretaries for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, going into the rural areas of the South to register people, to teach the people how to register and vote and to use the franchises as an effective means of change. They exist on 10 and $15 a week, living with the people, working with the people, trying to build new horizons for tomorrow. I, as a young Negro of Mississippi, feel that uh, she is not wanted because due to the fact the uh, white people of the South, they don't seem to understand the younger generation of uh, Negroes. Uh, we want to uh, put up with the uh, present uh, situation. Uh, it makes uh, any Negro uh, who is sensible uh, kind of angry when he hears uh, any uh, person acts a Negro. Uh, why do you want to do this, do that? Why do you want to vote? Why do you want to go to uh, the University of Mississippi? Well, uh, I think that the uh, Negro should uh, be able to chooses his own uh, institution as the uh, white uh, youth when he finishes high school. I think that the Negroes should be treated just like the white. I think when I will finish high school, that I will try to enter the college of Ole Miss as if James Murphy. My name is Emma Bell. I'm from Macomb, Mississippi. I'm 19 years of age. I'm a field secretary for the Student Nonviolence Co Coordinating Committee. I'm working, for, I'm working on voter education programs in Greenville, Mississippi. I feel that the Negroes in the South, especially the younger ones, would like to have the same opportunities and privileges that any other American citizen would have. And living within the system of segregation, they are aware that this cannot ever exist. Therefore, they are willing to work and fight much harder to do, a, do, to do away with segregation. Uh, the reason why I'm in the movement in the South is because I think that things have gotten to the point where people have to do things for themselves. They've got to stop depending on the, the federal government or the state governments or even the local governments to secure their rights for them. They've got to act to win the rights that the Constitution guarantees them people must make up their minds that if they want to be free and if they want others to be free then they've got to do something uh, something beyond just giving money or just casting a vote or just uh, wishing others well but they've got to uh, put their bodies in the movement as we say they've got to get out on the front lines and they've got to do something for themselves and for other people my name is james jones i'm 20 years old i was arrested in jackson mississippi for participating in the freedom ride i was charged with Bridge of the Peace and sent to Parsons Penitentiary. While, while being there two weeks, we heard the girls singing on the other side. So we asked one of the trusted what was wrong. He told us that the, the guards had taken the girls' matches, so we decided that we would protest that same night. We all started singing. The sheds came down and put us in solitary. Solitary is about six feet wide, seven feet tall. He put 27 of us in solitary, and that night, one of the fellows panicked. Another guy fainted, and so we decided we would cool down and, and ask the guard and ask the sheriff to let us out. So he let us out, and now that I'm out of Parson Penitentiary, I'm now working on voter registration in Sunflower County. Parson is located in Sunflower County. I'm 
and I'm the freedom son. Gonna stay right here and fight for freedom until this bell is won. Oh, which side are you on, boy? Which side are you Committee's voter registration project in Mississippi, Robert Moses. The young people working with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC as we call it, 
are characterized by restless energy, radical change in race relations in the United States. Their world is upset, and they feel that if they are ever going to get it straight, they must upset it more. My name is Charles McLaurin. I work in voter registration in Sunflower County. On January 25th, 1963, I went to the mayor's office in Indianola, Mississippi. My purpose, the purpose was to see if there were any laws on the book that forbidden voter registration activities in the city. The mayor jumped from his seat and said, you black son of a bitch, don't you come in here arguing at me. And I told him that we were there to do voter registration and that if there were any laws that forbid it to let me know. And he said, he, he said no. I turned to walk away and he called me back, said, Go out and teach everybody in the town. I don't care. But if you go into any churches, I will cut off the tax exemption. My name is Jesse Harry, and I participate in voter registration in the Mississippi Delta. It was during 1962. I was arrested in Jackson for contempt of court and fined one hall of fine and 30 days in Hines County Farm. The first time I was beaten was in Hines County on the elevator when Office asked me my name and where I was from, and I told him I was from Jackson. And so he beat me and he hit me side the head in the back and thing. The second time I was beaten on the Hines County farm because he, he asked me where I was from also, and I told him Jackson, and he said, are oh, you one of those freedom riders? And I told him I didn't know where it was, so he beat me. And the third time I was beaten was on the county farm because uh, I refused to move a 200-pound log. And the fourth time I was beaten because... My name is Hollis Watkins. I participated in a demonstration in Macomb, Mississippi, and was arrested for breach of peace along with 115 other students, while a mob waited on the outside. After being questioned, I was carried into a room where a police officer came in and got a rope and said, okay, nigga, get up from here and let's go. We're going to have a hanging here tonight, and you're going to be first. I looked at the officer as he looked at me, and then he walked out. I'm Samuel Block, Field Secretary for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I've been working in Greenwood, Mississippi, Lafleur County. My purpose of being in Greenwood is to teach the Negroes their duties and obligations and responsibilities of citizenship under a constitutional form of government. And by doing this, I teach how important ballot is and voter registration. When I, my first trip to the courthouse, I carried eight people up to register. I was met by the sheriff. He asked me where was I from. I told him I was a native Mississippian. He said, yes, 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 I know that, but where are you from? I told him I was a native Mississippian, around in here someplace. He said, well, what county? I said, well, around here, some of these counties. Well, he got angry. He spit it in my face, and he walked away. He turned around and came back. And he put his finger in my face, he said, look, he said, I know every nigga in his mammy around here. I asked him, did he know any of the colored people? He looked at me, and he spit, uh, walked away again, and he came back. He said, look, so I don't want to see you around in here no, no more in this county. He said, I want you to leave town, pack your bag, and leave town right now. Get out of town. Don't let me catch you around here no more. So I wasn't 
frightened. I looked at him. I told him, well, Sheriff, if you don't want to see me around here in town in the morning, the best thing for you to do is pack your bags and leave, because I'll be here. I knew that I wasn't leaving. Today in 1963, the fight to enjoy the rights of first-class citizenship is still being waged in this country. The needs of the people on the front line are great. We need typewriters. Welcome back. And that was uh, the documentary, We'll Never Turn Back, uh, focusing on the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in 1963. That'll conclude our program for today. Uh, we'll close out with Johnny Griffin's Sextet. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
Thank you.